As we move forward in regards to our lesson, then we're in day, or not day, I'm sorry, we're in unit two, so to speak. Um, I just want to keep reminding you guys that this is viewing it from a much higher elevation than we could take. Again, each of these, these sermons um, could be months spent in regards to speaking on that subject. And so um, we're going to touch on certain issues and skim through them, uh, but we're not really necessarily going to spend a lot of time on there. And so just encourage you guys to um, feel free to ask questions or clarification if need be uh, from myself on any of these issues and that will not be a problem for me. Before we begin, though, let us go to God in prayer. God, we are gracious that you have given us your word, and your word just simply isn't descriptive, but it's also prescriptive. God, and so I pray that we would apply it to our lives, God, and we would look to enhance our sanctification through your word, Father, that we would be a church that grows daily, monthly, nearly, to be more like its groom, Jesus Christ. So I pray that we would be a bride that is spotless and blemishless, God, in your eyes. And here we pray. Amen. So just to review a little bit of last sermon on Sunday, we looked at family throughout the scriptures. We looked particularly at family in the Old Testament and how the Bible over and over in the Old Testament scriptures commands parents to teach their children, to raise their children up. We saw how it commanded children to heed and hear the words of their parents as we read in Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 23 this morning, right? The foolish do not seek wisdom. The wise buy knowledge, right? They do not sell it. They take it from their parents. And in fact, it says so far that um, this is the joy of parenting. And so, it's something worth noting there that the Bible constantly points to that in the Old Testament. And then the New, we certainly see that picked up and continued with the book of Ephesians, pointing to the fact that children are to obey their parents. And this is, the, this is the command that has the first promise, right? A promise of long life. And we see this is an establishment from God in the Garden of Eden when he commands men and women to be fruitful and multiply, and to leave their father and mothers and to become one flesh. And so we have this beautiful picture presented in the Old New Testament about the biological family. But as God often does, his grace isn't just simply held in one sense. It continually multiplies and expands beyond what we can expect or even dream of. And so in the New Testament, God expands the family, no longer just to be biological, but to now be the church itself, to be made up of people from different backgrounds, places, ethnicities, nationalities, and experiences who are now family together. And so one of the things I think that we lose in thinking about the church is we often forget that's part of the glory of heaven. It's an eternity getting to know this family that is throughout all ages and diverse beyond our comprehension. And so part of eternity is marveling in the family God has created for all eternity to his glory. 
And so we see this expansion of a picture of what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we see the Bible supports this idea of the family being the center of children, the center of the church. And now we want to talk about what does family look like in the home. So this morning, to begin, I'm going to take a detour. Because family at home is such a large subject. There's a couple things I think as a church we want to be cognizant of and thought and thinking about in regards to family. And so one of them is, I think as a church, we have terribly prepared our children, going back many uh, decades, to see the value of family within the church. And so what I mean by that is, you think about what Jesus says in the New Testament, and you think about what he says in Genesis, right? What does he say to the son? This you will leave your father and mother to what? To cling to your wife. And so often I think in our current church society we have made independence the pinnacle of successfulness, right? You're not adult until you're what? Independent. So I'm not knocking careers. I'm not knocking college. I think these are all good things. But as a church we have to think of this question. Are we training our children up to understand that one of the key fundamental things they do is seek a spouse unless they're called to the gift of celibacy. I think so often we're so excited to say we got them out the door, they're in a good college, they're in a good place, they're going to make a good education, they're going to make good money, right? And we never stop to think, but have we helped them understand to find a good mate? To find someone that's going to build a home with them for the future. And so I think so often that's why in divorce cases, we've taught ourselves that we can survive divorce because we already know how to be independent. That's why Jesus says, let no man take apart what I have put together, right? The one flesh. So marriage changes you. No longer are you an independent person, another independent person who have agreed mutually to live together, right? It's this, your lives are forever broken when you break that. And so thinking of that as a side um, point, we want to remind ourselves that there is a picture of marriage that's vital for us to understand, right? So think of it from a church perspective in multiple ways of how we should reign train up our children when it comes to their view of marriage. Number one, it's a picture of who in, all, in the most important aspect. Well, as we're going to read a little bit later in Galatians 5, it's a picture of Christ and his church. Marriage is an on-earth picture of something that's now and future for us. It's a picture of his bride and his church. And so we teach our children that these things are to be good. They should seek out a mate sooner rather than later. And so I think so often in, in my life, I think back to my experience, and your experience certainly may be different, but as a common American Christianity experience, I think so often we've said, you have several steps you've got to take before you can even consider looking for a spouse. And we have to be careful, right? We're setting our children up for destruction. We're setting our children up for a misunderstanding of what marriage is. Right? So if marriage is this picture of God and his church, that's really weird for us to say, don't be like Jesus. Right? You need to delay that as much as possible. That's kind of what we're doing in a roundabout way. And then secondly, we've not done a very good job of talking about children in marriage. Right? So 
first, I want to say that certainly we understand there are complications and there are problems that arise because of the brokenness of sin that some, fa- some families can't have children. And so we certainly want to pray with those and lament with those who can't. But we also want to be a church globally that sees the beauty of children in marriage and doesn't see a separation of those two under normal circumstances. And again, often we do, right? We say, Take these five steps, get married, then learn about each other, make sure you guys are really well connected, and then think about bringing some children. Um, These are all things we need to, as a church, rethink about in our approach to, I think, marriage and the family. And so that being said, I said as a small detour, we want to look at this notion of family beyond mom and dad, okay? So we have lost, I think, that notion and responsibility of collective parenting. Turn with me uh, to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Titus chapter 2, 1 through 8. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And when you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets to take on civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Oh, I'm in Timothy. I'm sorry. I was like, man. But... I want to point something out real quick since I went there, right? Paul's writing Timothy, and he talks about not being entangled in the affairs of civilian life, okay? We're going to read Titus, which Paul also wrote, and listen to these words. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husband, that the word of God may not be reveled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opportunity may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul wrote, right, we should not be about civilian-mindedness. And to him, there's an aspect where civilian-mindedness is giving up your duties at home, as we see carried on in Titus. So we see first him teaching the older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith and love. But then he gives this interesting command to the older women. They're to be reverent in their behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. So women, you have to learn your theology. You have to actually be a theologian. Um, at our church, we don't think women take a back seat and are ignorant. We don't just simply say, I don't know, ask, ask my husband. He knows all these things. I don't know anything. No, that's, that's not at all what we believe the Bible teaches, number one, as we, we're reading. And number two, that our church 
uh, believes. We believe our women should be well-educated and well-knowledgeable in the gospel of Jesus. And then it goes on to explain why they're to be teaching of what is good and a form of that that takes place. Verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. I don't know about you, but when I read this, when I was first married, it blew my mind because I had a Hollywood vision of my wife that she would always love me, that I would always be lovable. Turns out I'm not always lovable. And even more so, I thought at least my children would always be lovable because that's her very flesh and blood. And it turns out my children are not always lovable. And so I want you to notice this important connection that Timothy makes here to family in terms of generational needs. You see, young women will struggle and potentially fail if they don't have intervention from older women in their lives. It is vital that we have that kind of fellowship within our family units. Now, for some of you, certainly I'm speaking to you because you're grandparents and you have direct influence and access to your children's lives. And I hope you're heeding these words. For some in here, though, they are potentially motherless or fatherless, and they have this interaction void within their parenting. And so as a church, we see this expanded to us to remind ourselves that we need older men and older women within the church. We need people who want to step up and be involved in the family, the family of Christ, his bride. And so make sure that you are heeding these words as we accidentally, but through God's word being holy, recognizing that you are called to be a soldier. You're training your younger counterparts to be loving to their husband, loving to their children, to learn what it means to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands who are sinful is vital. These are military orders that Paul refers to back in Timothy. And so we see this as an important part of the family. And so going back to the one point I was saying about celibacy is we don't normally see a lot of singles within the family unit because it's more of a current term um, that we have implemented in our society. And so what I mean by that is we want to see singles who desire marriage as someone we help to get married and not someone that we're saying it must be God's will for you to be celibate even though you don't feel the call of a celibacy. We want to be careful not to do that. So we want to invite those people into our homes. We want to invite those young men and women to be part of our family, to be part of your family. And so it's a, it's a simple question, but it's a convicting question for myself as well as hopefully for you in regards to how are we fulfilling Titus verses 1 through 8 as a church? So if you're an older man, how are you investing in younger men in your life, your own sons, your own son-in-laws, but also the young men in this church? And younger men, how are we taking advantage of the great wisdom God has given us in the form of older gentlemen? And vice versa for the wife or the younger women and older women as well. How are we embracing the need for one another in this church? And so I know for the elders and myself, we are always excited when we have new families come in. But as a younger person, I'm always carefully counting the gray hairs in the room. We need older people. 
If our church tomorrow became 100% young, that's not going to bode well for us. We need the older people in the congregation. And so we want to make sure that as a church we're, we're understanding this, that we are embracing the need for everyone as a family within the church. And so this is in a sense an overview detour of some couple things I want to talk about that I think are important as we go forward into the family and the home because these things are going to be intermixed. They're going to be intertwined. And so that being said, I want to talk particularly to the fathers in the room currently. So if everyone would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Fathers and husbands, I should actually say. We'll be in verse 22, and we're going to read through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are the members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so notice... In your Bible might have subtext, which is great. What is the subtext for chapter 6? For those of you who have it. Or the heading, I should say, not subtext. Heading? Children and parents. Okay. Um, you have to be a husband before you can be a father. Right? And I think it's an important place to start. Because I think so often, as men, we're good at compartmentalizing things. Right? I can be a great dad even though I'm having really hard difficulty with my wife. That's not the picture we get painted here in the scriptures. Right? Our calling to our wives is compared to that to Christ to his church. We don't see that kind of language used in verse 6 of parenting. We don't see this language of just like your father is a heavenly father, therefore be a father to your children. Now, certainly that's a good application, but that's not the application that Paul gives us here in Ephesians, right? He makes the direct correlation between Christ and his church to a man and his wife. And so, to be a good father, you have to be a good husband, right? We tend to think, again, we can separate these things, and so you can have really hard times with your wife, and it won't necessarily affect your children, and it's not true, right? I've heard people say that in the, out in the world. He, oh, he was an awful husband, but he's a great father. Yeah, those, those mix, right? Those carry over. They're, we know the consequences of bad husbandry 
in regards to what it leads to our children, the statistics of divorce, right? Those kind of things point to the fact that you can't actually be a good father if you're a bad husband. And so notice this, right, that the marriage relationship strengthens the parental duties. If the marriage is strong, if the marriage is being based in the word and husbands are leading their wives, they're going to see the gospel increase in their house, not de- decrease. Because look at with me in verse 25, right? So it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is uh, a very convicting passage for me because it is simply pointing out that as the head of the household, is my responsibility to engage my wife in gospel conversations. Not only to engage her in gospel conversations, but to teach her gospel doctrine. And so often I felt that, and that's why it's convicting for me, because I often don't take that approach with my wife. We often talk about things that have to do with life, bills, our children, needs, things that need to get done. And often I neglect that responsibility. But notice that vitalness of it. Because here in Ephesians, we have the need for husbands to engage their wives with the gospel so that they, wives, as they become older, as they engage with younger women, can teach them what? The truth, right? The good things is they teach the younger women. It's a unit, it's a complex web of interdependency of men teaching their wives who then learn the gospel that wives do and they eventually pass it on to young women as they help within their own household. So we want to make sure that we see this importance of the husband, the father, the man leading his family. And first and foremost it's to his wife. It's not just simply handing her a daily devotional and saying go read this and let me know how it goes if you have any questions. Right? It's actually engaging with her in the reading of the word, in participation of theology and prayer. And so it's important for us to see that the men are the first ones called, right? If you love your wife, you love yourself. Verse 31, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Potentially, this might be an issue that we solve for all eternity in heaven as God expounds and extrapolates for us how marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. But notice that the two become one flesh. It's a picture of Jesus. So if you want your children in the home to have a good picture of Jesus, you need to have a good marriage with your wife and with your husband. And so now turning to the women, let's think about that Titus 2.4, but let's turn to Ephesians, oh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8 with me. So in your mind, hold what we read in Titus.
Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them on the side of your hands, and you shall be a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So looking at this, right, we see this command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul. But then immediately, what does Moses connect it to? Right? You shall teach them diligently to your children. So to our mothers out there, I want to ask the question, are you diligently teaching your children, whether they are small or grown, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul? It's the call that Moses is pointing to, right? He teaches this foundational truth for Israel, and they immediately apply it to the fact that it needs to be taught to the children. That as a family, we teach this to our children. And so it's something of wives that's important to recognize. Um, especially when the children are young, they typically go to their mother. And mothers need to constantly learn to take time to find moments to share the gospel. In Proverbs 14:1, it says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Are you building up a gospel-centered home in your house, or are you tearing it down by neglecting to diligently teach your children to love their God with all their mind, heart, and soul? It's important for us to see. It's important for us to recognize. These are the key things which we're to teach. Um, and in the concept, we've seen this being compared to prolific theologies, right? Christ and his church, teach your children. God is one. Love him with all your mind, heart, and soul. Teach this to your children. And so we constantly see these deep moments of truth connected to how we engage and how we are to work within our families. And so we see this profound truth, right? These needs for men and women, husband and wives, older men, younger men and women, the family of God to come together and to teach the children well, the question is, how are some ways that we can do that? And so I want to point out some couple ways for parents who have children who are young and parents who have children that are old, or if you're someone who doesn't have children, ways to engage my children and the children of our church. And so we want to remind ourselves that even though this is particularly a sermon series built on the family, we are a family of God, and so there are things that I'm asking of you that the Bible requires of you to partake of as the church. And so as I read through these, be thinking about ways that you can engage the children in our church and your children if they're grown or if they're still at home with you. And so the first thing we can teach them is to know the gospel, right? So who is God and what is God like? The seriousness of sin, being born again, who Jesus was and is, and to be sanctified with holiness. Does anybody know what John 17, 17 says? John 17, 17. 
I encourage you to memorize it. It's a scripture to your memory if you've not done so. Jesus says, and he's praying about his apostles. He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, right? To sanctify is become more like Christ. And so as a church, I would pray that would be our motto, right? We want to sanctify one another by knowing the word and talking about it. And then lastly, we want to give the joy of heaven to our children. Um, we don't skirt around death with kids, right? With our church members. We talk about these things because we understand they have eternal consequences, but more gloriously, those consequences for the believer have gone away, right? They, the believer actually will be raised again to new life in Christ forever. So as you think about those things, right, we want to teach them about the gospel. We also want to be a church and a home of prayer. So a family without prayer is like a house without a roof, open exposed to all the storms of heaven. Are you a praying family? So even if your children are gone, are you still praying? If your children are still in the house, are you still praying? Think of back for those who have older children or their children left, did you pray with your children? And if the answer is no, the good news is, is that potentially can still be something you teach them, even in old age, to show them the need for prayer. And so certainly we should be a people who pray, but we should pray habitually. John Bunyan said famously, you can do more than pray after you have prayed but you can't do no more than pray until you've prayed. And so often I think in, in our certain situation, that's my first go-to. Calamity strikes my family, tragedy, illness, and my first thought is how can I manage this? What can I do to fix the situation? Well, my first thought should be first to pray and then go forward in thought. To teach my children that the first thing I think of is God's intervening in my life for the situation. And then, do you pray spontaneously? It's important for us to think about as we move forward in our lives with our children, praying spontaneously. So often, I've, I've, I'm afraid that children only see us pray when we are eating, right? Or at Thanksgiving, or when the family comes over, or special events. Um, we want prayer to be authentic and earnest and spontaneously when we go through our lives with our children. So we should be teaching them the gospel. We should be praying with them. And a key thing I think we should be doing is having family worship. Um, there's multiple ways to do that. And so I don't have a prescript, I don't have a dictated way you need to do it. It has to be at this time, on this many hours, this many minutes. Um, that is up to you and your family. But even again, if you are childless, if you're married, the question is, are you having family worship with your spouse? Are you getting together and reading the word? Are you absorbing the word together and praying with one another? But family worship should insist of scripture reading, some biblical instruction, singing, and a catechism. If you don't know what catechism is, it sounds Catholic, right, to my SBC background. So it's almost like a like a, a vampire, I want to put up my cross and hiss at him. But a catechism just simply means to learn, right? To commit to memory. Um, so, for example, there are many apps that you can use. And so I pulled up a random question from one of the apps that I like to use with a youth group when I was a youth pastor. 
And it has this question, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Um, that's the kind of question that if you can answer as an adult effectively and have scripture, you're doing really well, right? So if you think about your own children, if you work them through a catechism and they can answer particular questions with certain verses memorized, what will they be like when they're 18, 19, going off into a world that seeks to devour them whole and soul? It'd be, they'd be much better off. And so just to clarify, I think one thing that's important for uh, as we continue to grow, Lord willing, and eventually we, we get to the need where we have enough youth to start a youth group, um, whoever takes over the youth, uh, what's one of the things we will want them as elders to do is to actually teach sound doctrine. We certainly want them to have fun. We certainly want them to go play laser tag and spend lots of time down there. But we also want them to learn their theology as they go out into a big world. And so, <clears throat> lastly, we want to think about our daily interactions with the children. So if you still are, um, hold your finger there, if not, it's okay. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6, 7 for us again. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you raise up. And so here in this little picture, we get a picture of the day throughout a human experience, right? Number one, we all wake up. Everybody wakes up in the morning. Are we taking that time, the opportunity to pray with our children, to greet them to God's next day, new day? When we're sitting around home at the dinner table or watching a TV or playing a game or whatever it might be that you do in your family, how are we engaging them with the gospel? Walking, by the way, changed a little bit since then, right? We drive. Um, when you're driving your kid to school or you're driving your kid to an appointment, do you take the time to pray with them? Do you take the time to talk to them about these things, right? Where they're literally a captive audience, so to speak. Um, and then lastly, lying down, right? When your kids go to bed at night to close their eyes, how are we engaging them with the gospel? And then lastly, all these things come together in our lives with us being godly models. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 through 11. Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers the multitudes of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift use it to one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here is a small snippet of our lives as parents to be godly. 
How many times when you get in the car do you complain about someone and you, don't un and you don't think your kids are listening, but they are listening? Think back to your own life. How many times do you hear parents complain about stuff and you picked up on those habits? You picked up on those things they were talking about. And the next time you saw those people, you thought, oh, those are those people my parents don't really actually like. Right? How are we serving one another in the church? This is a wonderful passage about our lives, about being actual, authentic Christians in service to one another. I love that verse 10, right? Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Praise God that his grace is not one-dimensional. It is varied. It meets us each in different ways and different needs through the people in our lives. That's why we need one another. I love, and 11 even gives it more power in that sense, right? Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. That's profound, right? The words you speak to another person, the words you speak in this congregation matter. The words you speak around your children matter. The, the hospitality you show to those in the church, no matter how difficult you find them or frustrating or loving or joyful they are, matter to you, your God, and your children. So to close, because we're a mixed group, I want to read to you Psalms. From the book of Psalms, I'm going to read Psalm 103. I'm going to read verses 17 through 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. Remind yourselves, parents. So for those of you who have kids out of the home, it's a long journey, right? You got them out of the home. Praise God, they're grown up. But how are you still engaging them? The journey is not over. We are not in our glorified bodies yet. How as a parent are you still continuing with that journey? And to younger parents, I remind you, it's a long journey. There are lots of people in this room who can attest to that and who can help you on that way of raising children. We're given multiple opportunities every day to speak into the lives of families. So this day we meet together on Sunday. It's a day for you to speak in the life of that family and this family and that family and that family. How are we treating it? And not only that, but how are we doing it potentially outside of these a lot of times to come together? How are we ensuring that we are showing love beyond our meeting time on Sunday? And don't rest from your calling. Keep producing, keep working, and keep going as you see fruit produced in the lives of your children. The glorious thing is you're not alone. I'm not alone. We have one another to lean on. The church is where we can find rest. Sometimes my child might need an encouraging word from you, a reminder of the gospel, a reminder of their sin in their lives. Sometimes I am weary as a dad. I need encouragement from you to keep going and vice versa. And remember, it's never too late for your family or your children as long as they have breath in their lungs. Particularly, particularly speaking about children, Alexander White says, God cannot resist a pr parent's prayer when it's sufficiently backed up with a parent's sanctification. Live godly and holy lives for your children and remember God 
is sovereign. <laughs>